Good morning. For those joining us online, welcome as well. And what we want to do now is to take our Bibles, and we're going to be turning in them. We're going to be turning to Revelation chapter 1, exploring in the coming moments, verse 4, down through verse 8. I, I think that this is an extraordinary way to end a year by looking at a passage such as this. Because what you're going to find when you're examining these verses is that the timeless and the timely converge together in these verses. You're going to be able to find how the work of Jesus Christ is presented in a very visionary form in these verses. And so what I want to do is we explore these verses together, uh, turning to the last book of these scriptures, is to open to chapter 1. And now look very carefully at verse 4 down through verse 8. And here you and I find these words. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is, and who was, and who is to come, and the Almighty. And these are amazing verses we're going to explore together as we prepare our hearts for the bread and for the cup. And now, our Father, what we want to do is to not only open your word to us, but to open our hearts to you. You're going to be taking us into a time of review where we look back over 2023. Simultaneously, you'll be taking us into a time of preview where we look ahead to 2024. The old and the new tension when it comes to time is illustrative of the old and new matters pertaining to the second birth where the first birth, we come into this world physically, we carry with it the old nature. But by your grace with the second birth, when we are born again, we're introduced to a new nature. And so I pray that we capture the essence of the old new as we are preparing our hearts for the bread and the cup in the moments to come. 
So, Father, these moments are significant. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look again at uh, the screen where the image of the Iopotmos appears. Let's think together about what John is experiencing there on that aisle. Uh, roughly about 60 miles southwest of what is now modern-day Turkey. And this aisle belongs to the Greeks. It's a Greek aisle. And there you would find that this was a setting where those who had been exiled by the emperor Domitian were sentenced to working in the mines. Day and night, night and day. It's a desolate setting. It's removed from mainlands. It's a sense of isolation that's found there. And you feel the heavy oppression of the, of the Roman emperor being placed upon you because if you're there, it's because you are being exiled. You have resisted and rebelled against his reign. But there is an ultimate emperor that is overseeing the apostle John as he walks the shoreline of Patmos. He's one who reigns far and above Domitian, who has the final say. The Domitians of this world, they come and they go. But as we're going to learn, this ultimate emperor is, was, is to be. He is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And he is the one who remains upon the throne. And this is where the Apostle John will find his assurance. He will have a renewed sense of vigor. He'll have the ability to be able to not only cope with the present, but anticipate the future. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, no matter how challenging 2023 might have been, and the unknowns of 2024 standing before us, we have the one who is Alpha and Omega, the one who captures review and preview, the one who stands outside of time yet broke into time and is there to minister to you at your point of need. And what I want to do now as we explore verse 4 down through verse 8 together is look at what I will call uh, significant um, focal points, if you will, that help us to better prepare our hearts and our minds for the bread and cup to come our way and for the year that's coming our way. And the first focal point comes out of verse 4 down through verse 5, actually the first part of it. We're going to put it like this, that as you and I together, as we prepare for 2024, stay focused upon Christ. Let's do it collectively. Those watching online, join in this. Reflecting first of all upon what we'll call the distinctive titles of our Lord, which are found here in these verses. Now, we're going to have to inch our way into those titles. And so here is John now on the Isle of Patmos. And in verse 4, the Apostle John 
is he perhaps is reviewing his times with Jesus. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. And you say, Gary, tell me more about those seven churches. They're lined up along the shoreline of what is now modern-day Turkey, the Aegean Sea. And what is described here is that this is, if you will, a postal route, whereby a messenger will take this letter that the ultimate emperor has commissioned of the apostle John to write. It will be taken from one church to the next across the shoreline, strategic, because God has positioned this next to the shoreline because in that maritime era, this would give people the opportunity to have this word taken across the seas. And they would be add, given added information with regard to the one who is Lord over all. These seven churches then are pivotal to what is happening here. They're the recipient of these of the stories unfolding. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, in this case, think Turkey, notice how the greeting begins. Grace to you. On peace. When I read the scriptures, what immediately impresses upon my mind is that grace precedes peace. You will not experience peace from God until, first of all, you have experienced the grace of God. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's found at the cross of Jesus Christ, where Jesus Christ died for your sins, died for my sins. And when Jesus Christ died for your sins, I did not merit it, you did not merit it. It comes freely, but it came with a price, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And where grace abounds, the result is peace is to be experienced, but peace follows grace. Now, as he does so, he offers this as, as a means by which he introduces us to the richness of the way in which God operates in this world. What I want you to be able to spot is the entire trinity unfolding in verse 4 through the first part of verse 5. And in verse 4 and verse 5, marks off the three members of the trinity with the word F-R-O-M, from because each member of the Trinity has something to say to you and me, truths which come from them. The first one, found here in the heart of verse 4, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. This is the first member of the Trinity here at this point. And as he begins to speak to you, and as he begins to speak to me, he's allowing for the timeless aspect of who he is to be communicated in a timely way for you and me to be able to embrace. As we think very seriously about, about who he is, about what he has done for you what he has done for me. Our mind goes back to the Older Testament, doesn't it? 
It's, I'm sure that John has saturated his mind with the richness of how God has revealed himself in prior time. We're at the burning bush for Moses in Exodus chapter 3 of verse 14. And Moses is grappling with the enslavement of the Israelites. And he is being commissioned to be the one to guide them out of Egypt. And he asks the question, who shall I say sent me? God the Father announces to him, tell them I am sent you. Timeless. Speaking in a way that's timely. When Jesus Christ was standing before his accusers, his oppressors, and in John chapter 8, they were challenging him. He told them that before Abraham was born, I am. And at that point, what he was doing is that he, the second member of the Trinity, was identifying himself with the first member of the Trinity, that in both cases, they're eternal and timeless. For from him and through him and to him, who is, who was, who is to come. And what God delights in doing is that he takes timeless truths and he communicates them in timely ways, which is how we try to minister effectively for God's glory. We want to understand the times. We want to be able to do it in a way that's highly effective, to allow the eternal to break into the temporal, if you will. And so by embracing this strategy, we allow for timeless truths to be communicated in timely ways. And here now, we find the first member of the Trinity who is and who was and who is to come. And now John finds himself being prepped to be able to communicate effectively, preparation. Those of you, if you like me, love your college bowl games, you know the name Amos Stagg, one of the great football coaches in sports history. Well, stories told that as a coach, he kept his substitutes on the bench, but he kept them constantly alert by suddenly popping questions at them while the game was underway. One afternoon, turned to a fourth string player. Hadn't seen a minute of the game all season. And Stag barked, you, Cottmel, what would you do if we had possession of the ball with one minute to play, score tied, we only had four yards to go for a touchdown? What would you do? Well, coach, the young man stammered, I believe I'd slide down to the end of the bench so I could see a little bit better. Now, when you take the timeless and you apply it in a way that is timely, you're able to see things a little bit better than anybody else who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you see. Because while everybody else is caught up in the temporal, you understand how the eternal and the, and the temporal intersect, where three days later, Jesus Christ was raised from the grave. You've got a vantage point. Now, John, who had stood 
not only at the cross of Jesus Christ, but furthermore, with his buddy Peter, had examined the empty tomb, was able to talk very freely about the timely as it relates to the timeless, the temporal as it relates to the eternal. Pull this all together, and he finds a sense of strength here and perspective in these words, as should you and as should I, as we say goodbye to 2023 and hello to 2024. Who is, who was, who is to come. But notice what comes next. and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. What's John doing? What's he saying at this point? He is, he is processing now Isaiah chapter 11. He's finding strength in the words, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He's being equipped in order to be able to communicate effectively the timeless truths in a timely way through the book of Revelation. But then you, you ask, but Gary, if one is the first member of the Trinity, the who is, who was, who is to come, the other the third member of the Trinity, what about the second member? Notice the th third from. The first from him who is, who was, who is to come. The second from. From the seven spirits who are before his throne, but now the third from, from Jesus Christ. And coming out of that third from, what I now want you to be able to spot, if you would, are three significant titles that pertain to the second member of the Trinity. Do you see them? The first one, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. In the book of John, and John is now most likely reflecting back upon a statement that Jesus Christ himself had made. Jesus said, I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And then he would likely go to the 14th chapter that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit he penned. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. He begins to pull together the various aspects of the witness of Christ as he thinks seriously about his relationship with this one who died for his sins. And so what you and I do now is we consider Christ's faithfulness. And the Greek word for witness is martyrus. It carries with it the idea of martyr. That in his faithfulness, he was willing to die 
as part of the faithful plan that he was involved with. Not only is he the faithful witness, but the next title that stands out here in verse 5 is that he is the firstborn, the firstborn of the dead. Now, the Apostle Paul would have acknowledged that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, wouldn't he? Where he would pen, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And you say, well, Gary, my mind goes back to the study of the seven signs, and we covered the story of Lazarus. And Lazarus was raised before Jesus. So how does this idea of firstborn fit in if Lazarus was raised before Christ was? And the answer is this. Lazarus was raised to die. Jesus was raised to live. And when Jesus wept at the tomb of Mary, he knew that he was going to raise one who would once again have to suffer for a second time, go through the death process, and die once again. Lazarus was raised to die. On the other hand, Jesus Christ was raised to live. And so when you see this idea of the firstborn of the dead, the second title, what's being described here is not, is not the firstborn of the dead in terms of uh, sequence, but rather in terms of preeminence. And Jesus Christ, seated at the throne, reigning over one and over all. This is why this title stands out. It was used to describe the firstborn of the Israelites as they left Egypt, that they had a special place in God's sovereign plan. But now the ultimate Israelite has died and been raised from the grave. And as now John is exploring in his mindset the richness of the Old Testament and finding vigor in the way in which he can handle his solitude, Lo and behold, he senses the presence of the one who is the faithful witness, the one described as the firstborn of the dead. And then the third title, the ruler of kings on earth. And you can almost imagine how John is thinking, and Domitian thinks he's in charge. But Domitian will die. And there is one greater than Domitian here. And so you begin to explore this, and you think about the way in which through the years people have tried to substitute themselves politically for, for the one we know as Jesus Christ. I think of Ethiopia's king, Haile Selassie, who was reburied. And he had claimed to be descended from King of Solomon and Queen of Sheba. And he was revered as a god. And during his lifetime, he was called the King of Kings. When the Shah of Iran was deposed in revolution, afterward he died from cancer. His full title was Shah in Shah, which means King of Kings. 
Is there any wonder that the Bibles are banned in North Korea? And because the emperor there wants to be known as divine. So we see this again and again throughout all history. But the challenge is, is now to take the three titles of our Lord and take what is timeless, introduce them in ways that are timely. At the end of the British rule in India in the 1940s, there were a group of social scientists that decided to do a study to see the impact of the end of the British rule on the life of the nation of India. They gave up after six months because they discovered as they went from village to village that most people were simply unaware that the British had even been there. The British had been present since the 1600s. They were the ones that were supposedly rulers over India. But the average Indian villager lived and died without any awareness of the British presence. We live in a world where the king has come, but there are still countless ones who are unaware. But we have this one seated at the right hand of the Father on high. He has been validated by being raised from the grave. He is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn of the dead. Preeminence. He is the ruler of the kings on earth. The three titles found in that portion of verse 5 with three members of the Trinity spoken of in verses 4 to the first part of verse 5. And there's the second focal point. Not only are we looking at the distinctive titles of our Lord in verse 4 through the first part of verse 5, but secondly, the redemptive work of our Lord found in the second part of verse 5 on into verse 6. Remember how we used the word from in the prior point? Use the little word T-O, T-O, for this second point. Here it comes. To him, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. So what we want to be able to do is not only say this is what comes from him, but our lives are to be devoted to him. And so what we now do is allow for the one commissioned, the Apostle John, to speak to our hearts, to him. We're challenged here at this point. Who loves us. What stands out to me in the original language, the Greek, is that the word that's used here is an ongoing love, an ever-present love. It doesn't speak of a past tense love. He loved us. <coughs> in other words, when Jesus Christ was raised from the grave, he was validating the fact that this is an eternal love. He loves us. But then what stands next to you, next for you, and next for me, is that he has freed us. He takes us from the present tense, and he takes us back to what has taken place in the past. And he has freed us, where? From our sins. How? By his blood. This is, this is redemption. Freedom. Harriet Tubman. Freed as a slave, 
I had crossed the line. I was free. But there was no one to welcome me to the land of freedom. I was a stranger in a strange land. But Christ's work on the cross frees us. When we look very carefully at this whole matter of, of what Christ has done, you look to the past, and when you look to the past, the penalty of sin is paid. You consider the present, the power of sin it's being broken. You look to the future. The presence of sin will be removed. Past, present, future. God's got you covered. You put your faith and trust exclusively in the timeless one who does extraordinary work in such timely ways. And so you ponder that. You think about that. You explore that, and then you realize this was done in accordance with his blood. The bread and the cup, they speak to our hearts. How do you respond? Notice the other T.O. As you're partaking of the bread and the cup, to him be glory and dominion. And he deserves what comes next forever and ever. Let's mark it with an amen. And now what you've done is explore the distinctive titles of our Lord in verse 4 through the beginning of verse 5. And succinctly, you've embraced the redemptive work of our Lord in the second part of verse 5 on into verse 6. But now thirdly, ponder briefly the certain return of our Lord found in verse 7 and verse 8. This is an extraordinarily visual, visionary book. And so he begins with the word, Behold. He's using a visual to talk about that which is being communicated in verbal form. Behold. What captures my attention next is that it says he is coming, and it's in the present tense, which informs me that if it's in the present tense, it doesn't say he will come. That means then that he's in the process of coming. Fascinating that he's putting everything in motion, which means as I'm exploring the Middle East right now, he's putting everything in motion. He's coming. But as you and I ponder what it says next, he is coming with the clouds. With the clouds. And as John begins to think seriously about this, his mind, his mind might go back, let's say, to Daniel chapter 7. And in verses 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient 
of days and was presented before him. And John's own experience of Matthew 24, then will appear, Jesus said, in heaven, the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. He's coming. He's coming with the clouds. And now, every eye will see him. He speaks globally. Even those who pierced him. Now, in the coming months, we're going to take time and examine Zechariah 12 through 14 on Sunday mornings. Uh, this is, deals with the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's what we're going to be exploring together. Zechariah 12 through 14. To get a running start in Zechariah chapter 12, Zechariah writes, And I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. On one hand, John's pulling together that Old Testament teaching with what he himself had penned based upon his experience with Christ at the cross. Where in John chapter 19, verses 34 to 35, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and once there came out blood and water. Behold, he is coming with the clouds globally. Every eye will see him, particularly even those who pierced him internationally. And all the tribes, Jew and Gentile, will wail on account of him. He is so taken with this that once again it requires an amen. Even so, amen. And now he pulls together his thought processes of the three significant focal points, the distinctive titles of our Lord, the redemptive work of our Lord, the certain return of our Lord. <coughs> and what's he going to say? He'll allow Jesus to say it for him. I am the Alpha and the Omega which in the Greek language is the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Says the Lord God, what comes next is absolutely brilliant because now the second member of the Trinity is about to state what the first member of the Trinity had said back in verse four. Who is, who was, who is to come the Almighty. As 2019 was ending and 2020 was beginning, in World Magazine, there was this extraordinary article that was written by Janie Cheney. The beginning at the end Subtitle, the Alpha and the Omega keeps his promises and knows where he's going. 
She begins, today is the first day of the rest of your life. She was told as she was involved in getting ready for her graduation. A professor of hers had said, you pile up enough tomorrows and you'll find you've collected a lot of empty yesterdays. As she was challenged to review her past. But she would go on to say, I still like beginnings, like New Year's. But after all these years, I'm wise to them. They can still be slippery and insincere. For as long as I know, another one is going to come around. But then there's Jesus. And so she writes, big changes are ahead for me with this new year. And perhaps for you as well. Big changes are ahead for our country. She wrote this going into 2020, where she said, I'm anticipating a chaotic election year. I can confidently predict that we'll hear bad news and good news, puzzling news, and smack ourselves on the forehead news. But from heaven's perspective, however, the coming year is already old news. The real news is perpetually good news provided we know the Omega and the Alpha, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who came, the one who died, the one who was raised again, who is and always will be for God's glory. Fathers, we prepare our hearts now for the bread and for the cup. As we're thinking about in terms of review and preview who you are and what you've done, your work, your work in the past, your work in the present, your work in the future, timeless truths being communicated in such timely ways. We thank you that what communion does for us is that it allows us to enter into the review of what you have done and the preview of the fact that Christ will return. And so, Father, in the coming moments, as we reflect now upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, we give you all praise. We anticipate what you're about to do, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.